And even then I thought, well, we can make this better. I'm here for you. I'm going to be a consistent presence in your life. I would tell her all the things like I, I didn't place you because I didn't want you. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with you that made me look at my baby and think, oh, I don't want this one. <laughs> you know, right. like that's just not something that mothers do. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Anne Marie, who called me from Southern California. When she got pregnant in her teen years, She placed her daughter for adoption, despite every fiber of her being wanting to keep her baby. When she turned 18 years old, Anne-Marie's daughter, Alex, found her and they reunited. When Alex went to college, she slipped out of her studies and into rehab, where Anne-Marie was part of her and many other rehabbing adoptees' recoveries. In the end, Anne-Marie lost Alex twice, feels lucky to have known her at all, and wants every adoptee to know that we are loved. This is Anne-Marie's journey. So far on the Who Am I Really podcast, I've only interviewed a few guests who weren't adoptees, and this will be another one. Anne-Marie drafted an impassioned submission to be on the show. Let me read you a piece of what she said. I am a birth mother, but please read what I want to say. I think one of the big issues with the adoption triangle is shame. Shame that the first mom had an unplanned pregnancy. Shame that the adoptive parents couldn't conceive on their own. Shame of being a non-biological child to parents who care for you and the guilt of wanting to search. Then all the records being locked up as if no one should know anything about each other. It feels like a punishment, which adds more shame. At first... I wanted to stay true to the focus of the Who Am I Really podcast, sharing adoptee voices. But I quickly realized there is no place that I know of for natural mothers to tell their stories, and Anne-Marie was trusting me with her journey. Anne-Marie is the third of seven kids who grew up in Columbus, Ohio. She said her parents were spread pretty thin with so many kids, so there was a lot of the kids taking care of one another. Anne-Marie was a swimmer active on the swim team in the summer and staying close to the water at the indoor pool in the winter. She was into music, following bands like The Cure and The Smiths, wearing their records out so much she can't even listen to them today. While she was listening to her music, rocking all black clothes and wearing funky hairstyles, her parents were dressed conservatively in khaki pants and sweaters. At 15 years old, Anne-Marie found out she was pregnant. I remember... My parents basically, you know, being very conservative Catholics, they were like, you know, having premarital sex is like the worst thing you could possibly do. (laughs) So I was not at all excited about telling them or talking to them about it. But I just, I was so sick with morning sickness from such an early part of the pregnancy. There was really no hiding it. You know, I mean, of course, they were very upset and they're, they're, they were worried about a lot of different things, and they um, communicated that to me. My mom was pretty matter-of-fact and took me to, you know, the OBGYN and 
you know, I dealt with the medical stuff really early, got on prenatal vitamins and did all that stuff. Um, you know, I think for any dad to have his daughter uh, pregnant at 15, especially my dad, who's real uh, conservative, I just, you know, I'm sure it was devastating for him. I was so wrapped up in it myself, I think, that I didn't really consider his feelings that much. But I, I remember really feeling like I had disappointed him on a on an epic level. Yeah, I could imagine, right. So how did you, what was the discussion like about, do you recall at all the discussion to relinquish the child? The, my mom had uh, this cousin and he and his wife, I think, had been trying to adopt and she knew other people, and her sister included, who had been trying to adopt it. At that time, so that was like 1988, and and at that time, it was like to get a healthy white baby was like impossible. They, you know, people would say it just it just doesn't exist. People, I remember people saying they were on waiting lists to adopt babies for years. Then I've also heard stories of other people who, you know, was like a social worker just called them one day and said, you know, we have this baby. Do you want it? So I don't really know exactly how that whole mm-hmm. system worked. Yeah. I, I don't know if anyone knows right. <laughs> how it worked. You know, yeah. I don't know who was in theoretically in charge of how adoption in the United States was set up. Yeah. No, I was um, wondering more about the discussion within your family. Like, did the did the oh, hammer just come down and they were just like, "Well, this child's got to go," or did you know what I mean? I was more it, wondering. It wasn't your, your like internal. this child has to. Yeah, it wasn't. Sorry to interrupt you. It wasn't like this child has to go so much as like there are all these loving families that really want a baby and we have seven kids and you know we feel like this child is meant for another family interesting and it wasn't like yeah it was just like this child that was how it was it was like you are just carrying this baby for another family wow and it um is very like matter of fact so so yeah, it was kind of handed to me like this is what you're going to do, but it wasn't handed to me as a punishment. It was just handed to me like, hey, this baby's met for someone else. We know all these great families who are dying to have a baby, and for some reason, I remember them putting a very high value on a healthy white baby, which makes me want to vomit a little bit right now. But (laughs) that was what what was told to me at the time. Yeah. So um, can you, how was your pregnancy? You've said you were pretty sick. Yeah, I was very, very sick at the beginning, just like nauseous all the time. But then, I mean, I think probably after... A little bit into my second trimester, I was healthy. It was probably around then that my parents decided that I should live somewhere else, like once I started to show. So we looked into different options of where women in a distressed pregnancy situation could go go live. And through the attorney, they found this family that lived about an hour away from where my parents lived, and the family was willing to have me live with them. Um, The idea was that I wouldn't then be subject to 
you know, the embarrassment of my community, even though I really wasn't embarrassed <laughs> at all. It was, and, and pretty much I think any, everyone in the community knew anyway, because that's how people talk. But I think it was more for my parents, you know, to not have to see it and deal with it. But how it was, how it was framed to me or put to me was that it would save me some kind of embarrassment or shame. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was seven months pregnant or six or seven months pregnant. And I went to live with this other family and they had two adopted kids. So in living there, I was kind of like their nanny and took care of them. And I went to, to school there. I was, a, you know, it was really lonely because I was away from all my friends and, you know, far enough away that they couldn't just come drive down for like the day or whatever um so it was yeah i and just being in my family with so many people and so many moving parts all the time then to be in this family with just two kids i don't know it was just very isolating and lonely and Mm -hmm. uh, not not one of the four more fun times of my life for sure Anne-Marie's parents were kind of old school, so they came from an era where pregnant women were sent away to have their babies. She said it was odd, though, that her parents didn't tell her siblings where she went or why. The six siblings were told Anne-Marie was going away to be a nanny. That secrecy about her pregnancy added to the shame of the situation. When the time came to deliver, Anne-Marie was taken to the hospital, given Demerol, a precursor to today's epidural pain management, and she was in labor for 16 miserable hours. I had Alex, and then um, I got to stay in the hospital a couple of days with her. And I had her on a Wednesday, and because I had her on a Wednesday, and the attorney didn't, so I had to stay with her Thursday and Friday, and the attorney didn't work again until Monday. So I got to keep, I got to stay with her, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then, you know, Monday came the day of the actual relinquishment, and it was awful. It was awful. I, you know, everything in my whole body screamed, this is wrong. You know, here's this person, this baby, and it's part of me, and it's been part of me, and, you know, 15 seems very young by today's standards, but at that time, I mean, throughout history, 15 was like a normal mom age. So I feel like it's in, it was in my blood to be her mom. And I remember really wanting to breastfeed her and everyone saying, no, no, that I couldn't do that. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to keep blaming everything on being so young, but I just, I just did what they told me to do because I thought that they knew better than I knew. But at that time, I really did. I just believed that they thought, oh, you shouldn't nurse the baby. And so I I remember like physically really aching to feed her and just wanting that connection so much and just holding her and holding her. And the nurses would come in and they'd get mad and say, you can't hold her the whole time. You're going to spoil the baby. (laughs) This is a baby that's like four hours old, right? Right, right, right. Like, no, I need, I need this connection. Like I, I have this very primal 
connection to this little person and I she and I know she needs me to hold her and I know that I need to hold her so they would take her away and put her or like they take her and put her back in the little bassinet and then they'd leave and I'd go get her, <laughs> her back to me. but it you know for the most part I just did what they said to do because I thought they knew better yeah so Monday comes what happened Monday comes so the attorney was coming to pick her up from, so I had to say goodbye to her and, and that was awful. I, mean, I felt like I was, you know, like my heart was ripped out. I mean, there isn't even, there aren't even words. There aren't even words. It was like every, everything. And, you know, I was totally in love with her. It wasn't even like, there was any question. I wanted her more than I wanted anything. I thought about like, how do I, like, how do I get an apartment? How can I figure this out? How can I, um, you know, do all these things? So at this time, it was 10 days after my 16th birthday. And I was thinking, you know, I could go to high school part time and I could get a job. Like I just was trying to figure it out and trying to figure it out because it was just everything in me was like this is madness you can't give your baby away and I I just wish that I could tell every adopted kid this because that it wasn't even like I had a choice like I would have done anything else I would have chopped my leg off if that could have been a substitute you know yeah I mean I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and Mostly when you're a kid like that, if you cry and you're that passionate about something and you really feel like you need it, your parents will be like, okay, you know, (laughs) but there, but there was no, okay, there was no, we'll help you. There was no, we'll make this work. Don't worry. And I know it was awful for my mom too. it, It was awful. And it was just, it was just an incredibly, extraordinarily painful day. I mean, it still it still makes me cry if I think about it. It was just giving away something that no human being should ever have to give away. Yeah. Mm. So the attorney picked her up um, from the hospital, and then I had to go to the county courthouse to sign the papers. And... Um, you know, it was just more of that. It was just more of like, you know, it's like, it's like, um, like someone's squeezing the inside of your throat and kind of squeezing the inside of your face. And you just feel that pain. So right under the surface, mm-hmm. it, it felt like that for, I don't know. It still feels like that sometimes. Yeah. It just is not, it's not natural, (laughs) you know, for for me, it was very unnatural. It was against every grain in my body. Yeah, I can, it's totally unnatural. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine the moment of relinquishment and, 
I can't imagine what it feels like to go then to, you know, the court or wherever and actually sign legal documents, like go through necessary legal processes to actually make it real and then have to live yeah. your life after that. How did you live your life after that? Did you go back to the family? Did you go back home? Tell me what happened next. Um, yeah, yeah, I went back home. I just, um, I just want to note here that people just kept telling me this, you know, doing this, you're doing the best thing for her. You're, like basically that it's selfish if you keep her you're doing the best thing for her and for her future. Um, I remember the judge that I went in front of was like, you know, my my son's adopted and I just want you to know she'll have a better life. And, um, you know, that that is the sort of patriarchal candor that we've all been fed. Like, it, it's, it, um, it's hard to, like it's really hard for me to feel positive about adoption. You know, I've read a lot about the history of adoption and adoption in America. And it was very, uh, very much adoption as an institution was really started by men who had infertile wives and they wanted to give their wives what they could give them. And so they essentially took advantage or took it, advantage of people that were in a distressed situation and you know maybe a lot of those children were happy and did have a better life but as an institution I just think uh, adoption in the United States is a really sick thing yeah. and I know that that's going to make a lot of adopted parents really mad when I say that but I think when you really begin to see what it is and where it came from you really begin to see how much the birth mother is just supposed to disappear like they want I feel like the the sense for me was that I was sick and that I had like a bad flu or something and so I was sent away until I got better from the flu and then I was supposed to just be over it and there was no um there was no like oh, do you need counseling, or oh, are you okay from this loss, or oh, do you need to spend time grieving? There's none of that. It was like, oh, you're you're better now. That, you know, sickness is gone, so let's get back to life. And, you know, what what's wrong with you? Why are you sad? What, you know, get, get over it. She's gone. Too bad. You know, <laughs> there was no um, consideration really for, and I don't think there is for any birth mother. I mean, I'm not just talking about me. I think birth mothers in general are sort of shuffled away once the the relinquishment is over. Right. And the the adopted parents, the people, the lawmakers who set this up, that you know, they don't want to think about their baby who they just got having a connection with anybody else. They want it to be their baby. And I mean, that, that I think is a problem that happens with adopted kids is they have to, in order to fit in, you know, human beings basically are communal creatures and they want to fit into their, um, their tribe, if you will. And so they do whatever they can to acclimate. And part of adopted kids acclimating to their new family is kind of being in denial about 
their own identity or where they really came from. Mm-hmm. And that that disconnect, I think, causes a lot of um, emotional turmoil. Wow. Or it can. I mean, I'm not talking about every case, of course. I'm just talking about um, adopted kids that feel that turmoil. I understand some adopted kids just skate through and it doesn't affect them. I've never met one, but I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I've the more I talk with folks across the adoption spectrum, the more I question those who those adoptees who say they don't want to know. I think they've just pushed it down so far that they they don't want to bring it back up, right? And it goes back right. to these primal connections that you're talking about. The child that Anne-Marie carried for months, whom she stayed with and nurtured for days, was suddenly, legally, someone else's baby to raise. She was a teenager who was sent away to give birth, in effect, making an exit from her own life to go live a separate, secret existence to become a young mother. Having sent her child off into the world, Anne-Marie had to return home, a different woman than she was before she left. She talks a bit about her physical and psychological re-entry into her world. Of course, physically, my body had changed a lot, and I'd only been gone like four months. So a lot of, you know, I got a lot of comments about that, um, which was like, well, what are you going to do? I mean, it was just like, that's who I am now. But that is kind of a metaphor for what was happening inside of me, too, they say that like when you have someone that you're close to in your life die, that you'll never be exactly the same person. The experience changes you. You know, you you can change in a number of ways, but it changes you. And I I think that was how that experience was for me. It changed me. In some ways, it matured me. In some ways, it devastated me. In some ways, it you know, there was just, what it did, I think, is add a dimension of me that I had to lock away to be my own. Like, I knew no one could really relate. I knew no one could really, um, there was no one I could really talk to about it. Again, like I, I said, no, it's not like anyone said, hey, do you need to talk about this? It, it was like, okay, you're better now, let's move on, you know? So, yeah, nobody checked in on me to say, are you hurting or how do you feel or what are you going through? Um, There's no therapy, there was none of that. It was very much the pressure was just get back to normal, just go back to, you know, your stuff and your friends and your, you know, just be Anne-Marie again. Go back and be who you were. And it was impossible. (laughs) So in order to not disappoint everybody or to, um, to try to reacclimate, you know, I just, I just locked a lot of that stuff away. I think a lot of birth mothers do that, um, where they feel like, you know, I hate the word birth mother. I should use another term. What would you use? um, I don't know. I, I read uh, Lorraine Dusky's book, and I think she calls it a natural mother or an original mother. There's mm-hmm. like a lot of 
yeah uh, different terms for it but i i don't know what i, I would use but yeah. When I first met Alex, she called me bio mom, and I always hated that too because it made me sound like some kind of cyborg yeah. <laughs> robot right. or something. Right, some machine that just pops out things, and she was one of them, right? Yeah. I've struggled with it too, to be very honest with you. Um, it's So as the host of the show, it's very easy to make a clear distinction with a word like birth mother, right? And natural mother feels good like better than birth mother biological mother is something that i often use because it speaks very clearly to your relationship you are biologically related to this person but i also right. i also struggle with these words as well because sometimes the mother and for whatever reason has divorced themselves from the situation that was in the past. I'm done with that. Please don't come back. And sometime, and so in a situation like that, and this is just me, a word like natural mother, for lack of better words, almost feels too warm, if you know what I mean. So this is the struggle that I have on an ongoing basis is, and perhaps it's not for me to judge. I should just pick one, stick with it. And I try to explain it when I use it, right? So that I'm but but I let me not focus on me and go back to you. What what do you feel comfortable? No, with? I I I I'm not sure. I mean, I'm just Alex's mom. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm not the mom that raised her, but I am her mom. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just the mom who didn't get to raise her. But yeah. that's not a very um, concise term. I guess I just suggest that the, the this terminology is all feeds back into the original institution of what we were, how we were taught to frame this whole situation. I mean, we we were taught again just to get over it and go away, and so the terminology is cold and and not hmm. and and by design it's cold. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So you've returned to school. There's no counseling. There's no support. You're on your own. You're a different person. I mean, this isn't a normal teenage experience. It's not like all your girlfriends are like, girl, what a summer. We all had, like, this was only you, right? Right. And yeah. and your body's changed. Your mind has changed. You are different, probably a different sister to your siblings, just by virtue of, like, you've gone through an adult experience, so what was right. what was it like then? You I guess you graduated high school. Yeah. And did you go um, on to college? Like, tell me how the rest of your life went, and and specifically what happened on Alex's birthday for you. Uh, well, Alex's birthdays were. I always tried to do something to celebrate her birthday. Um, and I would write her notebooks and notebooks filled with things like that I wanted to tell her. And I would, you know, write song lyrics down that I, that reminded me of her and that kind of stuff. Uh, her birthdays were always important to me, but honestly, a, a lot, most things were, most things were like, what's she doing now? If I had her now, what would I be doing? You know, where, her parents were very, very, like, scared of me 
in a way that I was going to change my mind. I think um, a lot of people at that time, there was a um, like a made-for-television movie about a, mo- a mother who got her daughter back after she was like three years old. And I think it just freaked everybody out. And even though I tried in every way to make them feel like, hey, I'm not going to change my mind. I know this is your baby. You know, this is what, you know, I'm not a threat to you, basically. They always thought of me as a threat. Even when Alex and I reunited, they thought of me as a threat. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just... um, it's a naturally adversarial relationship, but we can talk about that as we get there. Sure. I think it just, um, every, everything was, uh, I, I'm sure you know that uh, W.S. Merwin has a poem, and I, I don't know it exactly, but the gist of it is, um, your absence has gone through me like a thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched in its color. And I think that, is how I felt. I think when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly right. It became, it became, I was this mom who didn't have her baby with her. That was everything that you were, was that at its core? That, yeah. I mean, for years and years and years, there were ways that I, and things that I would do but I, I guess I kind of felt like I wanted her to be proud of me. I don't know. I, I think I loved her with like reckless abandon, you know, and, and I didn't have someone to put that love on or to, you know, aim it towards. <laughs> yeah. So it just like tornadoed inside of me. In college, Anne-Marie was in a new community around new people, but it was always a little uncomfortable to figure out whether she should share her experiences as a mother who relinquished a child into adoption with her potential friends. It was an enormous part of her that if they really wanted to get to know Anne-Marie, they should know. But it was also an incredibly heavy story in her past that could be a lot to unload on a new relationship. It's really weird to say this, but it almost felt like I was lying because it was like I had this baby and I was a mom again but I wasn't and it just it would always sort of felt like if I don't tell the whole truth then I'm not really you know I'm not really being honest but if I do tell the whole truth it's weird and awkward (laughs) yeah right so it it was always sort of an uncomfortable I mean not uncomfortable thing to tell like I was never ashamed of her or of the story or whatever I just you know, and that, and that too, like we talked about before, is when I learned, you know, you don't have to tell everybody everything. And you kind of have to, when you do, detach yourself from their reaction because there's just a lot of judgment. Yeah, you do have to detach from their judgment, from their reaction, because their judgment in many ways comes out of some level of ignorance, It's either one that they have not been through anything that remotely resembles your story so they can't relate or that the person you've chosen to share with is intimate enough to know what you're know the thing that you've shared with them, but not so intimate that you've gone into all the details that they can therefore correctly empathize with you. You know what I'm saying? Like I've I will tell anybody I meet 
I'm in reunion with my biological parents, my mother and father respectively, and I've had a great experience, right? But that doesn't talk at all to some of the gory details of what I went through to reach that point. Like that was the super high level story. And so, you know, their reaction could be one of any variety of things, but it's not necessarily accurate because I haven't shared the entire arc of my story. And I, I suspect that that's what you're trying to say here is like, I could tell them, but I'm probably only going to tell them like a quarter of it. And I have to separate myself from their reaction because it's not fair for them to be expected to react appropriately when in fact, they really literally don't know at all. Right. You know, and actually that reminds me of one of the episodes you did before. I, I can't remember what the, the guest's name was, but he was a friend of yours, like that you grew up with. And he was also an African-American kid, but you knew him growing up. And I thought, what a great gift. When I listened to that episode, I thought, what a great gift that you had to have somebody that's going through a similar experience. Because really, unless someone is you know, going through what you're going through. I don't even mean this in a negative way, but they just don't get it. They just can't possibly get it, you know? And the only, I'm, you know, when a a parent dies or like, um, you know, you go through some tragedy, have a miscarriage or something, Mm -hmm. people will say the stupidest stuff because they haven't been through it and they don't know how, it feels, you know, like, oh, well, you can have another kid. Oh, well, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, right, <laughs> that right, right. Mean I'm not bad for the one I just lost or right. whatever the case is. But I, I remember that episode uh, with Andre and thinking what a wonderful gift that was to have yeah. you to have each other in your life. Yeah, that's my brother right there. I love that guy. But I tell you what, y- you know, even not even not so not even so much in in tragic circumstances. It's true for for giving birth as well. I mean, we've got friends, women who have, you know, they share the great news that they're pregnant and any woman you talk to, I'm sure you've experienced this. You can tell them all the great advice and all the warnings and all the signs and signals and da 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 but it's not until they go through it and they get to the other side of having given birth to a child, they will actually say, I mean, you guys told me, but I didn't know it felt like this. I had no idea. You know what I mean? And, right. And yeah, totally. It's, I always say I was an amazing parent before I had kids. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Like I, I had all the answers and then you have kids and you're like, wait a minute, this is the reality. That's the truth. Yeah. That is the truth. Wow. For a long time, Anne-Marie wasn't interested in intimate relationships. With the boyfriends that she did have, it took a long time to get comfortable with them. It was a struggle for a long time until she met her husband. Billy, with whom she connected on many levels. I asked her at what point she shared with Billy the fact that she had had a daughter years before they met. Pretty early in the relationship, I can't remember, maybe maybe a few months. We, I think we had been dating like six months or something, and we went on a road trip to see my parents, and I think I told him on the way up there. and I And it wasn't even like... Again, it wasn't like I was ashamed of it or that I thought it was a secret or anything. It was just one of those things where you, like, I I was almost more worried about him being upset than me being upset, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like you have this person 
that you love that's gone through this hard experience and um you could you know that can really hurt the empathy of it and the knowing that this person that you loved hurt so much it can really um be painful just to hear Mm -hmm. so i guess i was more aware of that and and sensitive to the idea that it was going to make him sad but he from the very beginning was always awesome about it i mean from when you know i told him about her to when we reunited to the whole time he was always a friend to her and positive about her and um, inclusive of her and i don't know exactly but he just made it very easy and natural for her to be in our life In February of 2007, Anne-Marie's daughter turned 18 years old. Anne-Marie and her sister were talking about the milestone birthday, realizing the young woman was old enough to locate her. She wondered if there was anything she could do to help the reunion process from her end. Anne-Marie's sister told her she could list herself on Adoption.com as a natural mother with identifying information that would be major clues for anyone trying to find her. I always knew when I placed her, I always knew it was just going to be until she came back. Like I, I knew it on some level that I can't explain to you, but I knew she was going to come back. I prayed every day for her and for her to be safe and for, you know, her to feel loved and for her to come back. Um, and it was really weird. It, this is just one of those things. But I was talking to my sons and uh, my older sons, and they were like five and three, I think, at the time. And they were like, what does adoption mean? What is that? You know, there's a kid at my school that's adopted. What does that mean? And they were asking me different questions about adoption. And I was telling them it means, you know, when that if a family's made, but the mommy doesn't give birth to the baby, that the, another mom does and then but that person's intended for this family whatever you know just making it kind of light and easy and they were like well what what kind of mom would put their baby with another family like that's madness and I said well actually I did that when I was a teenager I had a baby and I placed the baby with another family and they were like you know what does this mean is this our sister how does this all work and so I was kind of explaining it to them so they went to bed that night regular day the next day got the mail literally the next day i got a letter from her i mean it was just it was just the weirdest like holy smokes (laughs) this is insane you talk about the universe getting you ready i mean that's unbelievable i know i know it was crazy it was so crazy so i got this letter and you know a handwritten letter which is so weird now because you know when the mail comes it's all like oil change coupons and stuff that you don't really want and so i saw it and i opened it and i i like kind of almost started to hyperventilate like i i I think i didn't even really know how to react so before i could even read the whole letter i called my mom and i was like she wrote to me she wrote to me oh my gosh i want to read the letter with you and so so I read it over the phone with my mom and we were just crying and we were so happy and the letter was um 
it, it was funny. Like now I think of it as being funny because she was like, I, you know, here's who I am and, you know, here's what I do and I'm fine. So if you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I just want you to know I'm fine. Wow. <laughs> I was like, like, um, I mean, it was funny because she so wasn't fine. Like, she so wanted to have a connection with me, but she mm. didn't want to be vulnerable. And that's why that was kind of where the humor came in. Was like, she just kept telling me how much she didn't need me, but needed me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. And so we, but we laughed about it a lot later. Alex. Anne-Marie's daughter was graduating from high school in June of that year and was excited to have been accepted to college. Elated to hear from Alex and wanting to respond immediately, Anne-Marie sat down to write a response letter, mailing it back to Alex that same day. She wanted to talk to her and connect with her that badly. Anne-Marie was ready to jump on a plane and go to meet Alex, but she couldn't. She had small children at the time, and Alex had plenty going on in her own life. The women exchanged the letters, exchanged emails. Then they spoke by phone for the first time on Easter Sunday. It was just really natural. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, what do I ask her or anything? You know, the conversation just really flowed and we, I mean, clearly had a lot in common and like were very similar. In what ways? And so it was just kind of like how we look at the world, like, like things that you would not think to be genetic like interests, music, kind of like things that you would think the different, you know, your environment influenced. But we, I, I don't know, we just had, a, like, it felt like we just had a lot to talk about. And we, we kind of went and talked for a long time. And, you know, I had obviously a lot of questions for her and she had questions and I was just really nervous. Like I thought, I just can't lose this person again. So I wanted to, I didn't want to like really draw boundaries with her because I didn't want to do anything that would dissuade her from continuing our relationship. So I was probably a little bit overboard as far as giving of myself. I just knew, that doesn't sound right, but I just knew giving her up the first time almost killed me and I couldn't do it again. And so I just was like thrilled and just like super complimentary and just, you know, wanted her so much um, just to talk to her and connect with her and just to feel, you know, her in my life. Yeah. And I think she felt that way too. I mean, she was a little bit, more inconsistent about it than I was, but and it took her a little while, a little longer to like trust that that was that I was really going to be there, um, which I understand. Yeah, for sure. I I I remember what it was like to speak to my biological mother for the first time, my natural mother, and I can totally relate to what you just said. That there are things that you just don't even expect are innately nature versus nurture that come up. And you're just like, wow, I, I never would have thought that. But it, it, but it comes up naturally yeah. in conversation, and you're just like, I never could have predicted you would have said that. 
yet I totally agree. You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, and I mean, there's obvious things too. Like the first time she and I were sitting next to each other um, at my house in uh, in California, and we both put our feet. We were both barefoot, and we put our feet up on the coffee table, and we just burst out laughing. And I was like. I couldn't stop laughing and she goes we have the exact same feet (laughs) and I mean that kind of stuff like you can you can get like oh well of course you do you're you know genetically the same you know you got all the same stuff but yeah there were things that she would say or do and I was like oh my gosh I did that or I you know I think that or Mm -hmm. that's how I feel too yeah, or I, I thought my experiences brought me to that, but clearly that's not true. How did your, your it sounds like your conversation went well. Is that roughly correct? Yeah. How did it, how did yeah. it end and, and what did you, what was next? How did you get off the phone and, and what did you feel like after? I think I felt elated and scared. <laughs> yeah, I felt elated that like my prayers had been answered and here's this person that I've been dying to have in my life and she's here. And also, holy smokes, what if she leaves me again? You know, so I just felt a mixture of things. I felt, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how we hung up. I just remember it being more like, I'll just talk to you later. And, it always being like that, like, okay, well, you know, we didn't always plan like exactly when we would talk later, but I was like, okay, you're in my life now. So I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna let you go. (laughs) Billy, Anne Marie and their sons went to Ohio where they dropped off the boys at Anne Marie's parents' house. Alex and her parents drove from their home in Toledo, Ohio to Anne Marie's parents' home where mother and daughter were reintroduced there in the driveway they pulled up and i hugged her and this is not just one of those weird genetic things but we all have this nasally voice it's like it's just part of who we are i guess we're a nasally people but um so (laughs) we all have allergies and you know we have to always have a kleenex (laughs) so when i hugged her i kind of went because I didn't want my nose to run on her shirt. (laughs) And she goes, are you crying? Because that would be weird. And um, I I just thought, God, that's totally something that I would say. And I said, no, I'm not crying. You just stink. (laughs) (laughs) And like, like, you know, that exchange with most people would be like, a very weird exchange but like it just it was just stuff like that where we were like it was like I've known you your whole life that's how I felt after the meeting at Anne Marie's parents house Alex's maternal grandparents house Anne Marie's family went to Alex's parents house her boys were lucky because the family had fireworks for them to light so they had a lot of fun in August of that year before leaving for college Alex went to California to visit Anne-Marie. After going to college, Alex continued to visit Anne-Marie about every three months. There would be these periods of time where like, she wouldn't talk to me or return my calls, which in reading reunion stories is very common. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, The adoptee will kind of ghost the mom the re- uh, after the reunion because... 
like they want to make sure they're serious or they're testing them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've read a lot of stories that that's very common. Um, but I would just try to be consistent with her and, you know, check in like every two weeks or sometimes every week and just be real like, hey, I'm just thinking about you. hope everything's okay. Give me a call when you get a minute and that kind of thing. And like sometimes I'd get a call back right away or sometimes it wouldn't be for two months. But she, w- but she was visiting fairly regularly. She got involved pretty quickly into a lot of um, a lot of problematic things in college. She went to college in New York City and got involved with drugs and some sketchy people pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think she did about a year and a half of college before she had to go to rehab. And I think in college, pretty quickly, she felt like she was in over her head. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think she she felt like this, I don't know, like, I remember her calling me and saying, you know, some of my friends are like, in the times they're not studying, they're volunteering in an inner city, you know, school to help kids whose parents are in prison or something. And she's like, I'm so far from that. And mm-hmm. like, why, why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, yep. I don't know. Just do what you can do. If studying is all you can do, studying is all you can do. Some people are just cut from, you know, a different cloth. Don't yep. compare yourself. That's not going to end well for you. Right. So she just, I think she just felt like she was w- with all of this kind of demographic of people that, that she it was a lot with. of pressure to keep up with. Yeah. 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 So it was, so when she found these, other characters that she got involved with it was probably pretty easy to slide into that like club scene or whatever in new york alex was involved in drugs but she would still go visit Anne marie there was a band alex was following and when they had a gig in los angeles alex would visit Anne marie about a year and a half into college alex's mother called Anne marie to say they were taking their daughter to substance abuse rehab Alex's adoptive mother asked if Anne-Marie could join them for their parent meeting as part of her recovery. At the time, Anne-Marie had a six-month-old son at home, Declan. She was still breastfeeding, but she couldn't bring her baby to the meetings. To help her out, Anne-Marie's parents drove from Ohio to a hotel across the street from the rehab in Florida. Anne-Marie and Declan flew from California to Florida to stay at the same hotel. Declan's grandparents cared for him while Anne-Marie supported the rehabilitation process. She spent the days in rehab, racing back to the hotel every few hours to feed Declan. So the super interesting thing about these meetings was that in her rehab group, a lot of the kids were were adopted. Wow. So a lot of these kids who were trying to recover from addiction were also dealing with problems stemming from their adoption or, you know, issues that had popped up because of their adoption. So somehow I became the face of all birth mothers. (laughs) And it, and it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot because like that there was a kid that was uh, adopted from Korea by a white family and he was super, angry i mean he was mad and these kids were i mean i call them kids but they were all in their 20s you know it's relative uh, i yeah. think 
yeah, um, younger than I was, but I really shouldn't say kids because it makes it seem like they're eight and they weren't. But they, I remember him so well. And, you know, like I said, this is 11 years ago. I, I remember all of them and they were hurting so much. And they were, you know, were sitting in this circle, like therapy style, and they were, look, you know, asking me these questions. But they were all born after 1972, and I kept saying to them, look, if you were born after Roe v. Wade was passed, your mom wanted you. Like, it, abortion was, le was legal. Like, you, you could have, you know, yeah. been, I mean, the pregnancy could have been dealt with real quick. So if you are here, that means that on some level she wanted you and they were like no she didn't she just threw me away and my mom you know she's a horrible person and I just kept saying to them there's no way there's no way that somebody would go through a pregnancy and place a child if they were a selfish jerk Wow. I mean maybe there are those people out there I just can't I can't imagine a person that would go through all of that to bring a, a child into the world and place a child and go through all of that pain and then, you know, have like a secret agenda of just abandoning a child to screw them up or something. But like, that was the, yeah. that was sort of the sentiment. These kids were hurting because they really felt like they weren't wanted. And, you know, that was when I first read the primal wound, Nancy Berry's book. And, it was so illuminating to me, like, oh my gosh, I did, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that. So I, and I kept saying to them, I'm, I'm sure you were wanted. I'm sure you were wanted. And I remember the kid, some of them were like crying and shaking and so angry at me as the face of birth mothers, not at me, the human being, and just wanting me to comfort them and I I just they were shocked that I loved Alex they were shocked wow they really felt abandoned and sad and angry and I I remembered holding the um kid who was born in Korea hold, like I got down in front of him and was holding his hands and I was like you are so loved and he he was like shaking his head like he couldn't believe that he was loved and i just i mean i was just crying thinking how do i get through to this this person and let him know there's no way he would even be in the world if he wasn't yeah. and i you know this it's i i think he was from south korea i imagine she was just in a terrible position and I was like, you know, you can spend time being angry at her, but it's only going to hurt you. She she doesn't know. I, I'm almost positive all of the the moms that placed you guys did it to make help you have a better life. And they were so surprised by that. And so I remember thinking, how can there be this huge disconnect in the adoption world? But then again, I mean, that's how it was set up, right? That's how the institution of adoption has been set up in our country, that the moms just have to move on and no one, you know, the kids just have to acclimate. And, you know, if you're, if you can't acclimate, you're just not normal. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. You know, 
And, you know, here are these little kids who, I mean, you know, newly placed babies and toddlers or whatever, and they grew inside of someone and everything that they ate and that they were fed that was fed through the body, the body that was carrying them through their mother. And they heard all the noises and smelled all the smells and got used to all of the music and the everything, you know, the whole energy and the vibe and everything they knew from the moment of, of conception is gone. Yeah. And they're just like out to fend for themselves as tiny babies and just trying to survive. And I, you know, that's a lot to put on somebody. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. And then to do that and just expect them to, to be fine. It's too much. I mean, it's just, it's just too much. And I know that again, some people can do it and feel great, but I, that certainly wasn't the the face of the kids that I saw in that rehab. They they were sad and they were lonely and they were angry and they didn't know how to process it or deal with it. And so they turned to drugs, you know, numb, numb the pain, numb the pain. Mm -hmm. wow. And that was, that was hard. But I mean, I knew that that was why Alex was there too. I mean, I knew she couldn't, she didn't know how to deal with it. She didn't know how to deal with that lost connection. And I didn't know how to give it back to her. And I almost like, I remember saying in one of those meetings, maybe it would have been better if your biological mom didn't love you so much. Maybe it's because she loved you so much that you had such a strong connection with her from her love of you. And that's what's hurting you now. Yeah. Because I didn't have an answer, you know, I don't, and, and I knew Alex was hurting. I knew they were all hurting, but there's no way to, it was a hugely powerful experience for me to be there and kind of strangely be bonding and breastfeeding my baby when I have all these adult children who want that connection with their mom right. so bad. Wow. Yeah, geez, I hadn't even thought of that. That's incredible. And and as you've said, how incredibly challenging it must have been. So one, I want to acknowledge how challenging it was for Alex to have reached a point of self-medication to the need to go into rehab. And now she's there. And she's honestly so lucky to have you and her parents adoptive parents there that's a situation that i would imagine you're like one in a mil literally one million in terms of rehab experiences for any person to have a natural mother and adoptive parents there on scene helping to pull a person through to no longer feeling like they need to self-medicate and getting to some you know trying striving for sobriety but two focusing less on Alex and more on the overarching situation for you personally, you've gone there so to support Alex. And now you're confronted with probably, I'm going to guess there was eight other adult adoptees in this group. You have now eight times that experience of what you've gone there to support Alex for. And as you've said, you are now 
the face of the problem that each of these, those who were adopted, each of their, the sources of their problems, as they've said. I mean, that had to be the weight of the world for you. But wow, that's just incredible. It was intense. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was really cathartic for me because I really got to, like I had told you before, I loved her with reckless abandon and I really got to let all that love out. You know, um, I really got to communicate that love to all of these kids. I keep calling them kids, but all of these patients or whatever they were. Yeah. Um, I got to hug them and tell them how loved they were and how intense uh, the love of a mother is for their child, whether or not they get to raise that child and how this, this system, it, it, it victimizes the, the mother that doesn't get to raise the baby. I mean, it really does. And like I told you before, I'm not a victim and I won't live in that. Um, but I, I acknowledge it because it's really screwed up. I mean, it's real, like, like I was talking to my nephew about this, who's adopted and, um, he, he was like, why don't you, why don't birth mothers get compensated? And I was like, well, everyone thinks that's sick and weird because then you're just selling a baby. And he was like, I know, but if these guys, these guys sell everything, like they don't, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you in some way get acknowledged or compensated and I'm like because that means that i count or that there is some value in me and they don't want and it does you know they don't want value in me mm-hmm. they yeah. want just me to go away and he he was like well they always frame it like oh you're that would be so awful to sell a person to sell a person why they frame it like that I'm like it's easier to say that than it is to say to be compensated for your pain you know it's easier to throw that on you than it is to just be real about what it really is yeah but it's so much of it that is all to say not that i wanted to sell alex of course but that that is all to say this is how you know this is how this institution is it's a very screwed up institution yeah right and there's lots of pain on every side but it just really feels like once for for a birth mom for me it felt like once i'd had her i needed to disappear after alex's rehab she went to live with anne marie for a few months in california but Anne-Marie said Alex didn't seem to take the importance of her sobriety seriously. She seemed to think she was smarter than the tools she was given in rehab and she would figure things out on her own. She continued to drink and seemed to be using. Even though she presented as sober for a while, it wasn't long before she was back into illicit drugs. Like she wouldn't have been honest with me about heroin specifically, but like I knew she was... Towards the end, she lived in L.A., and so, you know, obviously I wasn't that far away from her. And I knew at that time she was doing coke like it was coffee. I mean, she'd, like, get up in the morning and do coke at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. She'd need a bump. Like, you know, she was just... Wow. That that was just how she was living. 
it just was astounding to me. But I kept her in my life, like I said, for fear that losing her again was going to kill me, basically, because <laughs> I, I couldn't handle it. Sure. And then, it, you know, it got so bad. It got so bad. Her personality was really changing. And so f finally, probably just about a, a year before she died, I was like, I can't, I can't watch you do this. Like, it's, it's awful. It's, it's too painful. And y you don't have to live like this. And I don't know why you are. And she didn't want to be accountable to me. So we stopped talking in April of 2019. And then um, I got the news that sh she had passed away the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So the Sunday before Thanksgiving was when she died. She OD'd on heroin. And, um, you know, like I said, we weren't talking. So... I got a call from her mom the Saturday after Thanksgiving, so almost a week later, and said, and she left me. Actually, she put put a message on Instagram that said, "Is this still your email address?" And then wrote my, down my email address, and I replied right away, "Yes." Why? What's going on? And she didn't reply, and so I googled Alex's name, and her obituary came up, and that was how I found out. Oh no. What did you feel in that moment when you saw her obituary? Just frustration. Just like, I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, by that time, I had felt so beaten up emotionally by her. And it just was like, I kept saying to her, I felt like I kept saying to her, but I do love you. But I do love you but I do love you. And it was like nothing that I did or said or could get through to her. And it felt awful. Like, I mean, I felt like it was my fault. <laughs> of course I did. If that's what you're asking, I absolutely felt like it was my fault. But I also felt like I did the best that I could with the information that I had at the time. I didn't know this much about adoption. I didn't know how it affected people. I didn't think it. I had heard stories all through my life about, you know, adopted kids being screwed up or whatever. But it never had been like a, a tangible thing that adoption is unnatural or whatever. It had just been like, oh, yeah, they're screwed up. They're adopted. Or, you know, you'd hear things by in passing of like mm -hmm. stuff but I never like had I never knew what it was and I never knew that I was doing something wrong by placing her and probably until I read the primal wound and even then I thought well we can make this better I'm here for you I'm going to be a consistent presence in your life I would tell her all the things like I I didn't place you because I didn't want you there's nothing intrinsically wrong with you that made me look at my baby and think oh I don't want this one <laughs> you know right, right. like that's just not something that mothers do like I'm laughing because it's so preposterous mm -hmm. to me to even think that anyone would think that um that you know I'm intrinsically unlovable that's it's just not true and 
that was that was I think how she looked at it that was I think how like her self-esteem had suffered so much because she felt that way and the feeling that way I can almost understand even though I know it's ridiculous I mean not that the feeling is ridiculous but just that nobody ever places a baby looks at their brand newborn baby and thinks meh <laughs> you know right um the the whole act of being a birth mother is a loving um evolution i mean it it's a selfless loving evolution for the most part i mean i get it some people don't know they're pregnant or whatever and they have a baby suddenly and they're like ah, i don't know what to do with the baby right. i you know i mean i get it they're different situations but I just felt like I loved her so much. I love her so much. And I, I didn't understand why we couldn't make, make it better or help her heal. Believe it or not, my question wasn't nearly as loaded as, <laughs> as what you um Did I over-answer you? No, you didn't over-answer. I just didn't want you to think that I was pointing a finger subliminally to get you to say you felt guilty. That was not my goal at all. I was literally wondering in the moment, like you had to know what was coming first for her mother to have messaged you cryptically and not replied. And you're not talking to your daughter. Like you had to know, uh Oh, this might be like the moment I feared. And I was just kind of curious to know, like, just what, what is that sorrow? I didn't feel think like, you know she I mean? was, I didn't think she was dead. I you didn't really? think she was dead. Wow. I thought she probably had gone back to rehab because uh -huh. I knew how heavily she was using, but no, I didn't, I didn't think that she was dead. Yeah. And I, it was, it, it, it still is a shock. You know, it's been whatever, six months now, seven months. It's still, it's still surprising <laughs> like like I, i'll think oh i gotta tell alex this she'll get a crack crack out of this a crack up or whatever and then just realizing again she's not there it just it's hard yeah. <laughs> it's hard it's hard to lose her it's hard to have her parents hate me and blame me and feel like like I'm the bad guy here when I feel like, again, like I did, I did everything with the best intentions and I was working with the the information I had at the time. And I tried to do what I believed was the right thing and it just wasn't good enough. Yeah. Did you go to her? Did they have funeral services with her? Did you go? What happened next? Oh, I don't know. They totally, they totally don't speak to me. I, I'm sure if there, if there was a service, I was not invited or included in any way. I mean, they hate me. <laughs> like I told you from the beginning, they, they were always very threatened by me. They never wanted to like me. They didn't want me in their life. They just did it because it was what she wanted. And you know, and I think they kind of felt like I felt like I didn't want to say no to her because I didn't want I didn't want her to alienate me. I didn't want to be separated from her. Right. So I I wasn't drawing healthy boundaries. I would give her whatever she wanted, and they were the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. In their mind, it's my fault. 
right. you know, in their mind, I'm the bad guy here. Wow. Oh my gosh. First, I'm sorry. I haven't said it already. I'm so sorry about Alex. Um, oh, that had you. to have been, I mean, I just, I can't, cannot imagine the heart wrench and just sorrow. And it, it's, you said it was only what, six or seven months ago. Yeah, it was uh, um, the, uh, well, I found out two days after Thanksgiving, so. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thanks. It's, um, it, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to wrap my head around it. It's hard even to go to grief groups because, you know, the general consensus is, well, that wasn't really your daughter or that, you know, that's not, I don't know. It's just hard. It's hard to lose somebody twice. <laughs> it's hard to, you know, it's hard having thought there's time and we, we can reconcile and there not being any more time. It's hard to know that I have such a, like, a deep soul connection with her and... And for her to have not valued that enough to to get better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know addic addiction is a disease and everything, but it it, it makes me really angry. Yeah. It there, there's just a lot of dimensions to it where I really have to divorce myself from from anyone's judgment or the idea of anyone's judgment because I don't think a lot of people have have gone through this. And I have, I mean, I know that Lorraine Dusky, that author, um, has a similar story. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember in the story where, uh, what happens, but I know her daughter dies that she had placed once after they were reunited. And she was in that story. It's called Hole in My Heart. She is very honest about sort of how exactly, what exactly her experience was. And I don't relate to all of it, but I don't think they're, there are very many people that would even tell this story. I mean, there's so much shame about being a birth mother or a natural mother or whatever we decided, a mother who doesn't get to raise her child. Mm -hmm. And I told you this when I first contacted you. I was looking for a podcast about, about mothers who don't get to raise their babies, about mothers who relinquish babies for adoption. And... There isn't one, or at least there wasn't then. I haven't looked again, but I think there's so much shame surrounding being a birth mother that people don't like to talk about it, and that that's awful because I think we all really need each other, and I think these stories need to be told to help each other heal, and nobody wants to, like, whatever, out themselves, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's right. But it's not until we can release the shame that that we can all heal. It's not until we can stop, you know, hiding and stop being ashamed that the healing will come. Yeah, I agree. And you're 100% correct. I think there is absolutely a gaping hole in the podcast sort of open support network for natural mothers to be able to speak with each other on behalf of their own stories because the adoptee community has stepped forth. And, you know, my show, Haley Radke's Adoptees On, so many others have 
reached out to say, hey, adoptees, tell us your stories, because it's not all, you know, peaches and cream. There's a lot of different nuances and, as you've said, dimensions to what you've been through. And many adoptees will reach out to me and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so thankful to hear, you know, see the work that you're doing and it has healed me and and others that I know, whatever. But, and I told you, I, I would love to interview more natural mothers like yourself. And I'm so thankful that I, you reached out and that we agreed to tell your story because it's been enlightening for me to hear your words from your perspective and your experience. And one of my fears was that I wouldn't be able to adequately converse with somebody who has produced a child. I, as a man, cannot do that. And therefore, I just I wasn't, it didn't feel comfortable to me to do justice to your story or any other natural mother story because I've never given birth I've, and I can't. And I, I hope that, as you've said, there will be somebody who steps up and says, we got to do this. We got to start telling these stories because, as you've said, the shame and the secrets on all sides, the patriarchy of the system that facilitates adoption um, really creates some barriers between people that are creating some of these tragedies that, unfortunately, Alex and some of the other folks in her addiction program and so many others who don't necessarily get as far as addiction but struggle all the same are going through. And I think it's really important that somebody initiate a podcast where natural mothers like yourself can tell their story too. I, I hope that that comes to, to life. Me too. Me too. We agreed the Natural Mothers podcast will be a very challenging emotional journey for the interviewer and the guest. I told her the main thing the host needs to do, whether it's Anne-Marie or someone else, is to be able to empathize with the guest, and who better to do that than a natural mother? Something I sometimes ask my adoptee guests is how they feel they are as a parent to their own children. But this is different. I was speaking to a natural mother who had lived the experience of relinquishing a child into adoption, then going on to have more children later in life. I asked Anne-Marie what she thought she is like as a mother after her relinquishment experience. Well, I have four sons, and I, and I you know, hate to say this, but I do think that people raise children differently based on their gender. And... Um, I, you know, Alex obviously was, is a girl, a woman, and I, I think I show up for them probably differently than I would have with daughters. They're, they're not as, I don't know, some, some sons are like cuddle buggy sort of sons. My, mine don't happen to be, I, I mean, I'm affectionate with them and they're annoyed with me as a lot of teenage boys are with their mom. I, I am afraid to be very, very like soul bearingly honest. It is scary to love them as much as I can because I feel like I have all this. I mean, I feel like I love them so passionately and so deeply that sometimes I just can't ex express it. It's, it's uncomfortable for them and it's, mm -hmm. and it's hard. And it's hard after having lost a child to be the same 
person that I was before. Um, I mean, they all lost a sister too. So they, yeah. you know, they're grieving too. I think in some ways I had four kids hoping to in, maybe fill that void of the loss of Alex. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just venturing to guess, but I, I love being a mom so much. I feel so extraordinarily lucky to be the mom specifically of these four boys. I mean, I feel like they're all extraordinary human beings and I'm just so, I mean, it blows my mind that I get to be their mom because <laughs> they're such neat people and just, just so interested and fun to talk to and insightful and, it's more, I mean, it's more than I could have ever asked for, really, in each of them just being their own unique individuals and having their own gifts and their own perspectives. And it just, it's, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just feel very, very blessed and lucky. And um, I love them like crazy. And, and I love Alex like crazy. Yeah. Um, it's just something I wouldn't wish on anybody, I guess. <laughs> the whole story of Alex, it's just something that it, it feels like it's too much. Yeah, it is a hell of a lot. I won't lie. Wow. You know, you said soul-bearingly honest, and right after you said that, it occurred to me that It occurred to me that I wanted to hear your story as a bit of a surrogate for my own mother's story. I wanted to hear... I wanted to hear from a natural mother what she felt, what she thinks, thought, experienced. And you absolutely did that. And I can't thank you enough. Well, I hope. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing. And I just, I really admire, I love your podcast. I love your book. I think you have such a great insight into things. And I think you're really helping people. And I, I, like when I sat with all those kids in the rehab and that they seemed so starved to hear from a birth mother that they are loved and that they were given to their parents out of love and not anything else and I just hope that all the adoptees in your audience can hear that they are lovable they are loved and uh, you know it and important and it's a painful painful triangle and it's it's not helped by this whole institution and the way that it's set up and wrapped in shame and wrapped in um, in turmoil and just because adoption is so screwed up does not mean adoptees are screwed up. Yeah, that's really well said. Thank you. Anne Marie, thank yeah. you so much. I really thank appreciate you, you taking for time. What you do. God, this was amazing.
I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, I wish I could give you a big hug. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, hopefully uh, Billy and the boys will do it for me. You can go to each one of them and say, Damon said, you have to give me a hug. <laughs> well, apparently they're all standing outside of the door because they all need something. So. Good. Well, tell them hugs first. So I won't have to go far. And then okay. you, you give, get what you want first, and then you'll give them what they want. Okay? Take care. Thank yeah. you for your time, Anne-Marie. All the best. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. Man. That was a very emotional experience for Anne-Marie and me. She and I texted after this interview, and I thanked her profusely for her openness in sharing her story, and she thanked me in return for this platform on which to tell it. I feel really sorry for Anne-Marie's double loss of her daughter, Alex. I can't imagine the life-changing experience of carrying and delivering a child, holding her and knowing with every cell in your body that the baby really should stay with you, but ultimately relinquishing her days later. Then there was the excitement of Alex's return, the disappointment of her self-medication with drugs and alcohol, then the crushing experience of losing her again forever to addiction. But I have to say, I'm really thankful to Anne-Marie for her message to us adoptees that we are loved. I'm sure for some of us, when we reflect on the feelings we assumed our natural mother had for us, it didn't feel that way. But to know that she wrote to Alex, prayed for Alex, took Alex into her home during her recovery, and feared losing her a second time filled my heart with love for the bond that a mother feels for her child. I'm sure many of the natural mothers out there who are hoping daily for an adoptee's return would join Anne-Marie in a chorus to us that says, we love you. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Anne-Marie's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I really? Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.